So we have a, uh, a special um, COVID update uh, this morning. I have a guest, a special guest, Dr. Trey Bateman, who's with uh, the Department of Neurology here at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Uh, and uh, he has um, uh, graciously agreed to come talk to us this morning about some of the neurologic issues that can go along with COVID. We get a lot of questions about that, and, um, and it's, a, it's a deep issue. And so uh, we, will, we will be chatting in a little bit after um, I give us a brief update about where we are. Uh, right now, um, uh, I first would like to say a special hello to Linda and all my friends up in Eden, North Carolina. Uh, this is where Dr. Baton hails from, and um, so uh, um, beautiful city on, uh, on two beautiful rivers. Uh, if you've never been there, go check it out. Uh, it's a pretty cool place. So where are we going right now um, with COVID? So um, here, we'll start here locally. Uh, in the triad, our cases are still coming down. Um, so we're roughly uh, running about eight per 100,000 um, per day, which is uh, about the lowest point we've ever been. Pretty similar to where we were at the end of last June, if you remember that time, right before Delta came up. And, um, and so that's a very comfortable number. If you're looking at the CDC charts, uh, we're still in the yellow range, and as I have talked about a couple times, we probably will stay that way because we have a lot of acute care hospitals uh, here um, in, the, in the triad, specifically here in Forsyth County, and we have a fairly low population in Forsyth County uh, compared to the number of hospital beds we have, and since the number of occupied hospital beds with COVID now factor into the CDC's color scheme for risk, um, it brings ours up. Meanwhile, if you're down in Charlotte, where your rate is also roughly at about eight per 100,000 per day. Um, you have more people in the city of Charlotte. Um, and um, that uh, means that the bottom of the fraction is higher so that the fraction becomes lower. And they're in the green zone. So good for you down in Charlotte. Um, so uh, here in North Carolina, our numbers are also uh, relatively plateaued out. Um, kind of in this low range. We're running about 3.3% positive uh, for our testing in the area. Not a lot of tests being done right now, um, but um, that might pick up a little bit. So they, uh, across the country, I would say we're in a quiet time. We're in a sweet spot with COVID, um, and it's a good time to enjoy that. Um, now, there's been a lot in the, uh, in the, particularly the print media of late, about um, potentially um, a harbinger of problems um, in, uh, in Europe because their cases, case rates are going up some there. So I just want to put that in perspective a little bit. Um, <clears throat> and yes, in some countries uh, in Europe, cases are going up. Uh, but there are also some countries in Europe where the cases are still coming down. So notably where the ones that are going up um, are is uh, the German-speaking German countries, the Germanic countries, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, um, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, um, and then uh, the UK uh, and Ireland. Uh, meanwhile, um, Spain and um, um, some of the other countries, uh, Denmark and the Netherlands are coming down. So this has been um, 
kind of saying, well, why is this happening? And um, it, it's multifactorial for some of these countries. Um, as, as we've talked about for six weeks now, we've been following the, quote, son of Omicron, the BA2 variant of Omicron, um, which is a, one that has a few different mutations than the, the original parent of Omicron. And, and I've said in the past, it's, uh, it's a bit more infectious, and so it, um, it can gain a, a little bit of an advantage in a large population. But if for you as an exposed person, or for you and a family, it's, it's not that much more infectious than Omicron itself to make much of a difference for you. But uh, that's been brought up as a potential reason for increasing cases. Personally, I think it's probably more that uh, most of these countries in Europe um, really um, took their masks off, gave up social distancing, in fact, gave up all, almost all their restrictions. Um, and, um, and that's going to increase cases some, just because there's more of an opportunity for transmission to occur. Um, and then uh, lastly, it's been postulated that there may be some waning immunity from um, vaccination, including the original vaccine series. Um, and, and that's probably contributing a little bit too. Um, the, the one thing though is I think you can't lump all of Europe together and say that's um, what's going to happen to us here. Uh, for instance, uh, if you look at Denmark and the Netherlands, so Denmark's rates started going up at the, at the same time the UK's rates and Germany's rates were coming down. And the people in Denmark said, well, you know, we, we're going to we're not going to lock down again. We're not doing restrictions again because our deaths and our hospitalizations really haven't gone up much. Or, and so it, the impact of it doesn't seem to be that high. Their case rates um, in Denmark at one point were up to 500 per 100,000 per day. Again, I said we were at eight. So they, they were having a lot of COVID cases diagnosed. But um, it didn't really, um, the impact on it on their society wasn't um, huge. It really wasn't a big problem. And now their cases are starting to come down. So they ended up having a bit of a uh, post-initial Omicron wave uh, that was smaller, um, but yet uh, less impactful. The, um, the other thing you have to realize about Europe is that this is a place where it's really easy to get tested for Omicron. Um, and so you can walk into just about anywhere um, and get a good uh, test. And the, it's become sort of the cultural standard now in Europe uh, that if you got a cold, you get tested for COVID. Um, I don't think our testing rates are as high here in the United States. Um, well, I know they're not. And, um, and so um, they're going to they're gonna catch more. And most of the uh, COVID that they're catching are breakthrough infections and vaccinated people. Uh, we've been calling COVID colds um, and really um, aren't all of that uh, meaningful for the individual's health or for the health of the population. So um, the long and short of it, how concerned am I about the BA2 variant? Um, it, well, it's we're seeing more of it here in the United States. Interestingly, it hasn't caught on as fast in the U.S. as it did in Europe. Um, some places in the U.S. it's about 25 percent. 
Here in our area in the triad, it's probably somewhere around between 10 and 15 percent. Um, but it, I, I really don't think that this is going to uh, be a big problem for us uh, in the future. Um, I also want to remind people, as I've been saying all along, that COVID is not over. Um, so I was asked the other day in the grocery store, Dr. Oh, when is, when is COVID going to be over? When it, will it be over? And my response was, it'll be over when Tom Brady stops playing football. <coughs> and, uh, and as you know, he's back to playing football. So, uh, so I guess it's kind of like we'll let Tom Brady be our COVID groundhog. Um, and um, so we have, a, we have in store some more COVID in front of us. Um, I still think that the, uh, the worst is behind us. I think that the, uh, the January wave is, is the worst we're going to see for the sheer number of cases. And I think Delta was the worst as we're going to see for um, severity of infection um, and um, um, numbers of deaths. And um, so, um, so anyway, um, I, I haven't changed my tune on that. Um, we are going to continue to live with COVID um, in a way that's a little bit different. Um, will our masks have to come back? Well, you know, um, I think a lot of it's going to be individual, just like it is right now. If you want protection, if you have an underlying health condition, if you're older, if you um, are immunocompromised, you probably want to be wearing a mask. Um, will we be doing it for the entire society? Uh, maybe we won't need to. Maybe we'll mask the people who need to be masked to protect themselves. One thing that we really, um, I think, is going to be a big difference is antiviral treatment for COVID. And we're seeing that open up more and more and more now. So, um, and at some point, um, will be some pharmacies will see it that if you get a positive COVID test, you'll be able to get your antiviral drug, your quote, Tamiflu for COVID. Uh, at the same time, um, so, um, but I, I think that uh, that this is going to help us move into a period of endemicity. So COVID's not over. Uh, we're just going to change, and the way COVID impacts us and how we think about COVID is changing, and um, and that I think is still an optimistic good thing. Um, uh, one study I want to talk about before we uh, turn back to Trey. Um, is um, <clears throat> you probably saw this week that uh, Pfizer put in uh, for an FDA emergency use authorization for a fourth dose of their vaccine. Um, and um, the, the, what, what does this mean for us? Um, well, the FDA is going to look at it. And then even more importantly, after the FDA weighs in on it, uh, the CDC and the um, ACIP, which is the Here's How to Use Vaccines in the United States Committee, um, will tell us what, what we should do with it. The FDA will probably authorize it. I mean, the, the vaccine's safe and effective, and antibody levels go up after the fourth dose. Um, but um, what we really need to know um, is does our population Need, as a whole, need a fourth dose of vaccine to keep us out of trouble. Um, and right now, the data it shows, most of it shows that it is. 
Um, and even for Omicron, um, um, having uh, two shots and a booster was, uh, was 91 percent effective against serious infection, hospitalization, and death. That's come down a little bit, but it's still in around 80, low 80s, and that's pretty darn good for vaccines. So um, there may be some people where a fourth, fourth dose would be useful. Right now, even as we speak, if you're immunocompromised, you should get a fourth dose. And maybe, you know, our older population, those over 70 or so, um, might, might have a fourth dose coming down the pike for them. But I really am not sure that we need a fourth dose uh, for most people right now. Um, next fall is the big question. Um, will we get a booster, um, just like we get a flu shot booster before respiratory viral season? And will that COVID booster just be the uh, same old COVID shot we've been giving, or will it be one that's more specific for the Omicron-type variants or for another variant should one come along? We'll have to see. We don't have enough data to know about that yet. Uh, but we got some time to think about that. November is a ways off. So um, with that, um, let's talk a little bit um, about COVID and the brain. Okay. And, um, and Trey, you're a brain guy, right? Uh, I am. I'm a, a behavioral neurologist here at Wake Forest. Now, what is a behavioral neurologist? So a behavioral neurologist is somebody who uh, has primary training in neurology and goes on to do additional training in the full name of the fellowship is behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry. And so we um, focus on the intersection and the Sort of the, gray, the gray zone or the border zone between uh, neurologic illnesses and psychiatric illnesses with the idea that um, all behaviors have a uh, brain correlate. I see. So uh, in practice, we end up seeing a lot of folks who have cognitive troubles, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, traumatic mm. brain injury, and the like. Cognitive meaning difficulty Me thinking, memory and thinking, function, yeah. memory problems. Memory and thinking is a good yeah. way to put it. So you use the word psychiatric in there, mm -hmm. which sometimes turns people off a little bit. Do you want to expand on that? <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I think that you know we, we use the term psychiatric often to refer to uh, behavioral and emotional changes that people have. Um, but we see behavioral and emotional changes in all manner of brain diseases as well. So after stroke as a consequence of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, things that people would not sort of have that same negative stereotype about psychiatric changes, uh, they still have behavioral and emotional changes as a consequence of those brain disorders. Um, and so we you know, I end up seeing and treating a lot of those manifestations of primary uh, degenerative diseases of the brain. Yeah. So it makes sense, uh, you know, because our personalities, who we yep. are, how we feel, how we think, is done by the brain. Yeah. And I, so if the brain has um, some loss of function, yeah. then those things will change too. It's just part of it. And I know a lot of people probably have seen this in their own loved ones as time goes on or after an illness and, and I tell, think a little differently. I tell patients that, I mean, it's, it's no different than lifting your arm, right? I mean, I, I see people who have strokes who may have uh, severe apathy or, or even psychosis after a stroke. 
Um, and that's no different than somebody after a stroke being paralyzed on one side of their body. The, the difference is we, we all like to feel like we somehow have more control over our mental functions. And so it's uh, a little uncomfortable right. to recognize that um, but for an intact brain, you know, we could all experience a change in our personality, a change in our ability to perceive what's going on around us. Right. Yeah. So let, let's bring up something, because that really got a lot of attention lately. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a study published in Nature, and for those of you who don't know, the Madison Scientific Journals, Nature's right up there. Um, of New England Journal, Nature, and these are ones that uh, you get into that journal, we pay attention. Yep. Um, and so this, uh, this study looked at people who've had COVID, and then, mm -hmm. um, and then looked at um, it scans right um, afterwards to see what the brains were like afterwards. What what were the main findings from this study? Well, and and the thing that was so important and convincing about this study, we've had a lot of studies that have sort of taken people who've had COVID, scanned their brains afterwards, and looked for looked for differences. Um, this was the first study that that I've seen that had people who were in part of a study going on over a period of time. They had a scan and then they were gonna have another scan. Well, about 400 of those people between those two scans had COVID, most of them mild cases. And they had another 400 people who had those two scans but didn't have COVID between the two. So the first time they got a scan for some other reason or just part, part of, of a study. study. Yep, just part of a study. They hadn't had COVID yet. Exactly. And then they got a scan. And then, and then they got COVID which was just unlucky for them, yep. and then they got another scan. And so what it found, um, you know, it, it did find structural differences in the brains of people who had had mostly mild COVID. And uh, intriguingly, it was sort of in the areas where we might have thought you would see it. So the, uh, there's been a lot of talk of the, the smelling system and the olfactory system uh, with, with COVID. You know, early on, people will remember yeah. that Every, you know, everyone was losing their sense of taste and smell. And that part of the brain is uh, very intimately connected uh, to the older parts of the brain called the limbic system that are responsible for emotion and memory and things like that. And so what, uh, what this study found was a very small but real reduction in volume of those areas that are connected to the, the smelling system in the brain. Um, it was a fairly small difference on the order of 0.3 to maybe up to a percent difference. So that sounds small. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's real, but it, it is small. And to put that in perspective, um, you know, when, remember, scans are sort of, um, we're, we're making some presumptions when we do those scans. We like to think of them as sort of perfect arbiters of reality. There's a lot of things that change what we measure on scans. So to put it in perspective, uh, people have looked at, well, if, if we do a scan in the morning and then we do a scan in the evening of, those, of the same people, do we see a difference in their brain volume? And it turns out we do see a difference in their brain mm. volume. So just the time of day can impact uh, a, a small amount of volume in the brain, mm. a, a similar order of magnitude to what we're seeing here. Now, these folks were all sort of scanned uh, at different times throughout the day, and so you know, I, I think it's a real change, but it is, relatively speaking, pretty small. Yeah, but because they had so many, 400 and some, 
yeah. you can maybe say something. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's I think it's real. I think it's there. I, what we don't know is what happens three months from now. What happens six right. months or a year from now? It's certainly possible that those lines will sort of stay apart. It's also possible they may come together, and we won't be able to see right. uh, differences in brain volume. So it could be that. temporary. It's possible. Yeah. So, you know, I. What, it, what does all this mean, though? So you say it's particularly in the areas where the smell <coughs> and so, you know, for those people who aren't had neurology 30 years ago like I had, <laughs> um, you know, the, the smell and emotions tend to be kind of in the same area in the brain. Mm -hmm. So what, what does that mean for them? Does that mean they can't smell anymore or that they behave differently? So it, it could mean that for some people. Right? Some people have had persistent trouble with smell afterwards. Some people have had it and it gets better again. Um, people certainly experience changes in uh, the emotions they experience, how they are, you know, how they experience emotions after, uh, after a COVID infection. The problem is a, a lot of things cause those yeah, differences okay. in how we experience emotions. And so being able to link it specifically to you know, this is caused by uh, that infection is, is really challenging scientifically. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So, so I, everyone knows I had COVID last August mm -hmm. and um, I lost my sense of smell for, uh, and taste for a few days, um, came back as far as I could tell. Um, and so if I forget to pick up the milk on the way home, um, can I blame COVID for it? Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've not had, I've not had COVID yet as far as I know. Yet. Uh, yeah. and yet, yet. Uh, and I also uh, frequently forget the milk on the way home. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the, the, the things that people will, will, will have concerns about um, maybe a, a normal experience. Our memories are yeah. not perfect. Right. Our attention is not perfect. And it can, one of the concerns is that while there are likely people who are experiencing very real structural changes to their brain and body leading to symptoms after COVID, it's also exceedingly likely, based on what we know about the human brain and mind, that there will be people who uh, begin to place more emphasis and import on those normal uh, memory lapses right. and and may th you know think with with you know studies out like this oh my goodness this is you know this is now a, a really significant yeah. event and and because my brain has has an right. injury so is it normal for somebody to have more memory problems as they age just i mean without yeah. having yeah. you know a disease or dementia but is yeah, it, is so that normal? we talk about sort of healthy cognitive aging, mm -hmm. and if you draw it out on a graph, there there is a, a downward slope. Uh, it's not huge, but we do see changes in what's called um, uh, often sort of goes under this heading of fluid intelligence, so the ability to think quickly, to to multitask, and things like that. We do see some decline as people age, and when we do testing in clinic, we that's the reason we take into account age and education level yeah. because age does absolutely impact how people yeah. perform. Huh. Yeah, you know, I, we, I was taught by a neurologist back in the day um, that our brains, brains are plastic and mm -hmm. that people tend to think of the brain as what you get is what it is. And, yeah. um, but, um, but it seems like that 
He was right. Um, they change back. for better and for worse. Yeah. So can the brain, you know, um, can one part of the brain pick up and take over yep. from another part of the brain if you lose some in that area? Absolutely, and I think we see this most, uh, most convincingly after things like stroke and traumatic brain injury. When we, yeah. we see people who have very clear, very sometimes large areas of their brain that have uh, not just temporary injury, but cell death. I mean, parts of the brain die. And when that happens, sometimes in three months, six months, uh, people with, uh, who had, had previously had fairly significant deficits may, you may not be able to tell. Um, or you may only be able to tell if you do very precise testing, and it's certainly recovered more than it was right after the injury. That's really the, the entire basis for uh, rehab, stroke right. rehab. So let's shift gears a little bit what, to talk about what this might mean for an individual. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I had COVID last August, lost my sense of smell and taste. So should I get a scan? No. The, this is not something that, so I, I look at brain scans most days of the week uh, uh, when I evaluate people who have cognitive, uh, cognitive disorders, memory and thinking disorders, and I would not be able to see any of this with my eye. This mm -hmm. was, the, the way that they found these, these differences is by using you know, pretty sophisticated uh, computer programs that you know, very, precisely outline the areas of the brain and then calculate the volume of those areas yeah. wouldn't be clinically apparent. So, I got it. So, uh, so I shouldn't get a scan right now. Uh, I would not order one. All right. So, um, who, you know, who should see, what kind of symptoms to sometimes do you <clears throat> see that might be attributed to the neurologic system yeah. after COVID? So, I think there's, I sort of break this down into two two time periods is the acute symptoms that you see with COVID that can be neurological. And those are, uh, those are mostly pretty, pretty obvious. With any infection, people can get confused, a delirium. Um, people can develop, uh, we, we've seen an increase in stroke, uh, strokes, especially in uh, younger adults. Yeah. Um, COVID seems to really uh, do a number on the clotting system. Yeah, in it some does. People. Yeah, and, it's not um, just the brain that takes the hits sometimes yeah. either. So. And and we've certainly yeah. seen people, you know, uh, in the hospital who, uh, you know, have COVID, have no reason to have a stroke that we can identify other than that, and they've got clotting problems throughout. Um, so that's certainly a possibility. Um, sort of in that subacute period, get, getting away from the initial infection but going out to weeks and months, we've seen some cases of what's called uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is really just a, a, your body starts attacking the nerves as they leave the spinal cord and can cause people to develop yeah. weakness. Which you can see after a lot of infections, by exactly. the way, because yeah, even, even things as infectious diarrhea can cause that. Absolutely. Same with delirium. There's nothing unique about COVID yeah. with regards to that. We see that after lots of infections. But as we move into the chronic phase, you know, this is where it gets, starts to become a little more difficult to, uh, to determine the cause of the symptoms. And, um, but the, the things that we are hearing about and seeing in the post-COVID setting, um, we headaches, um, dizziness, some people are developing a, 
um, syndrome of dysautonomia or the, the, the part of your nervous system that controls things like blood pressure, heart rate, uh, seems to have difficulty regulating that. I so see. people will develop, uh, you know. Racing hearts. Maybe. Racing heart. They yeah. may stand up, feel like they're going to pass out. And yeah. it, it can be quite debilitating for mm. people. Um, some All these things sound rare, though. Uh, these are pretty rare. Uh, and, and that's the other thing to keep in mind here um, is that the vast majority of people, after they've had a mild COVID infection, do recover. Yeah, um, they're fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's um, yeah, in, in many ways, it sort of parallels um, the concussion world, which is a, a place that I live. Lots of people have concussions, and by and large, they recover pretty well. Yeah. Maybe have some, some early temporary symptoms, but for them, in large part, they recover. But there's a small number that really have Mm. Uh, quite severe persistent symptoms that occur after the concussion or after COVID, and then figuring out uh, is it due to is it due to COVID? Is it due to something else? Um, can be tricky. So should you see a dive? So let's say you had COVID, uh, you know, three, four, five months ago, and now you're mm -hmm. having what you think is a, more of a problem with headaches. Everyone gets headaches, sure. but so they seem to be more severe. They seem to be worse. When when should a person see their doctor for that? So. Yeah, I would, I would tell people who have this after COVID uh, essentially the same thing that I would tell them if they had never had COVID. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing unique about headaches after COVID per se. Um, you don't treat it differently. Mm -hmm. So if headaches are increasing in severity, if they're persistent, severe, and especially if they're causing impairment in your day-to-day -day life, very reasonable to see, yeah. to see a doctor about that because you may be able to help. Yeah, I mean, even if it's just a migraine, exactly, it's something for that. Makes sense. Let, let's, uh, at the last part here, talk a little bit about um, what people call long COVID, mm -hmm. which, um, by the way, the real term in medicine is post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Not surprising that that term hasn't caught on. <laughs> um, but is long, are the neurologic issues with long COVID, or are they, what's responsible for long COVID or what, what really is long COVID? I think one of the mistakes that, that is, sort of gets made is, is this tendency to lump long COVID into a single thing. Um, I, I don't think there's compelling reason to believe that every patient who experiences symptoms after COVID has the same thing. I think there are probably multiple different sort of presentations of that. Um, and, and some of them, there's some early research looking at sort of brain fog that, that people uh, will describe that uh, commonly, you know, that be thought of as sort of a neurological thing, difficulty thinking, difficulty concentrating, difficulty with attention. Um, and there does seem to be some individuals who have uh, changes in um, the fluid that surrounds the brain. Uh, that can be associated with that. Uh, there was a study out of uh, in San Francisco recently that looked at that. Um, at the same time, brain fog is is not an uncommon thing for people to to sort of complain about with um, outside of COVID as well. Um, and so, it, in some cases, it may be related to sort of a primary neuro neurological or brain issue. In other cases people come in and, and they're just really fatigued. 
Yeah. Um, and that fatigue is really the cause of the brain fog, um, which is important to tease out because fatigue is very different from just isolated brain fog without feeling tired because you can treat fatigue a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 I, I think you're right. I mean, as an infectious disease doctor, we've, since I, my first days of being a doc, um, you know, I've been referred patients with what have this post-acute sequelae mm -hmm. syndromes where it really seems like they had an infection or they had some event in their life or something that was different and then they have this prolonged fatigue um, dominating mm -hmm. illness afterwards with, and with brain fog and such. So it's not just COVID. In fact, I did some no. looking at it and, and some of this was described actually all the way going back to the Civil War. Really? Uh, in World War One, yeah. So it's been around for a long time. We used to have an entity in uh, infectious diseases called uh, chronic brucellosis, post-brucellosis. Mm. We don't hardly see brucellosis anymore. It's an mm. infection you get from animals. But it was common in the 30s and 40s, and it was described then. Um, and so, you know, it always seems like there's something that, that this gets linked to, and right now it's COVID. Yeah. But... Um, I, I really, you know, it's really hard to, to sometimes make, to help patients with it. But there's always something you can do that make people mm -hmm. feel better. Yeah. So w what would you do if, say I think, you know, I had COVID and <coughs> I'm having a lot of problems with what I think is brain fog. I just don't feel like I'm thinking well enough. And maybe my wife says, you know, he just doesn't seem quite mm -hmm. the same. He's not as sharp as he was. And I come to see you, what kind of tests will you do on me? So if, if you come in complaining of those symptoms, um, you know, I'm, I probably will get a brain scan at that point. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would almost certainly get some really detailed cognitive assessment. A lot of the things that, that your physician will do uh, at the bedside in the room, they're, they're pretty crude assessments of, of memory and thinking. So I would probably uh, ask my colleagues in neuropsychology to see you. And the reason for that is that they're the ones who do really detailed cognitive assessments. And what's important to understand there is, do you have objective declines in your memory and thinking? Or do you, is, is, are those scores normal, but you're still experiencing day-to-day -day difficulties or perceptions of difficulties with your memory and thinking? And it's not to, to diminish people who have those normal scores but still have problems, but it tells me something different about the brain, right? Um, if, if you have uh, these sort of objectively low scores, that sort of puts things in a different category of really worrying about more of a, a primary right. memory disorder versus if you come in telling me that your scores are all normal, then I'm gonna start looking for how are you sleeping? Could you have sleep apnea? Mm -hmm. Could you have um, you depression. Know, depression, anxiety? If you had severe COVID, could you have PTSD or a, a post-ICU syndrome, which right. involves a lot of symptoms yeah. of PTSD? Because all of those things are treatable. Um, I, I look at those cases as sort of, you know, there's sort of a chain of problems that are leading to someone's clinical presentation some of those chains are, links are just what they are. I, I can't do anything about having had the COVID infection. There's no treatment 
for that per se. Right. It's, that's an event that happened. Right. But you can treat headache, you can treat sleep, you can treat mood, you can treat all of those things. And taking that sort of rehabilitative approach, people can get better right. and improve uh, improve symptoms. So yeah, that, let's let's expand on that just a little bit here in the mm -hmm. last minute or so. The let's say my brain scan's okay and my neuro psychology testing looks pretty good, like about what it should, mm -hmm. um, and we can't really find anything else, but I still feel really tired and I get mm -hmm. this brain fog. And what, 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 what kind of things would you recommend to, to help? So I, you know, if fatigue is, is a really prominent thing, I might work with someone's uh, primary doc to make sure they're not experiencing any hormonal you know hormonal changes mm -hmm. uh, hypothyroidism other common causes of fatigue that that sure, could be going yeah. on um, I would uh, try to get them into a rehab based program for sort of uh, cognitive rehabilitation as well as maybe uh, physical therapy to help improve their uh, their uh, exercise tolerance exercise capacity so you see like cognitive that. rehabilitation so yeah. you can actually help the way people think yeah through that yeah absolutely and you can both there are some things that help the way you think but there are other things that are not designed to help restore function but just sort of help you do better with the problems yeah. that you have yeah in order to make lists keep memory yeah. and you know things like that exactly things that we all do anyway so this has really been fascinating I uh, I, and hopefully people find it um, find it useful in helping explain some of the things that are out there. Um, any questions from the group for Dr. Bateman or me? I've got some. Mm -hmm. uh, for Dr. Bateman, um, I know you touched on this already, but how common are these linear neuro neurological psychiatric side effects, and are you seeing it at Wake Forest or locally? So um, we are. Um, you know, I think you see it your places that had. Um, sort of higher peaks in the wave of, of COVID are seeing it uh, more commonly um, or, or just more frequently. Um, you know, it's, uh, I don't know the exact uh, prevalence, I don't know the exact percentage, but um, you know, of all the people that had COVID, it's a relatively small amount, you know, in the single digit percentages, I would think. But I don't know that for certain. And are you seeing it like here locally, like? So yes, we do have we do have patients that are referred for that. Um, I am certainly aware of people that are. Uh, there is a I believe there is a post post COVID uh, post COVID clinic uh, at Wake Forest. Um, I, there's also one at some of the other medical centers in the state. So we are certainly seeing those problems. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, it's hard to know in any individual person, you know, if, if symptoms are going to improve. Um, we know that in a lot of people they do, and there can be delayed improvement. There are people that, um, you know, have had symptoms for weeks and months that then do go on to improve. It takes the nervous system a long time to recover if there's a real injury to, say, those um, you know, the smell neurons, those smell cells. Um, 
there's nothing that I'm aware of that's been shown at this point to help. Um, so there's no specific therapy for those things. That's one of the more frustrating parts is that when people come uh, to us and they ask us for, for advice, for a lot of these things we're kind of stuck with, we, we just really don't know um, what's going to help. There, there's a study out, out of England that um, suggests that if vaccination, if you've not been vaccinated, and or booster if you have, um, can re help speed up recovery of, uh, of smell um, and, and help with some of the other symptoms. Um, and um, and it, it kind of makes sense a little bit because it, it almost is like hitting the reset button on the immune system. So, um, so that's one thing that we do recommend in addition to some of the other things mm -hmm. that Dr. Bateman described. But sometimes it does take a while, it can even be a year, um, but that plastic brain can sometimes reorganize um, and uh, how the neurons interact in the brain. And I think people do improve with time. So yeah, it's that's yeah. it's a very um, <clears throat> so we do, the, unfortunately this is another one of those things we don't fully know um, we it's sort of a topic over the past couple of years at a lot of our major uh, Alzheimer's disease and uh, cognitive disorders conferences um, there is. Uh, Certainly impacting the, the structure of the brain, like that study we talked about, uh, makes everybody concerned that there could be downstream consequences. We just don't know yet. It's not been long enough to know that. We, we do see people, I certainly see people, who come to see me uh, for a dementia evaluation, and they say, well, the symptoms started after COVID. In that case, it, it, it's almost never, in, in no case that I've seen, uh, can I say, oh, well, the COVID caused that. It's usually more of an unmasking phenomenon. Most of these diseases are developing over years before symptoms begin. And certainly an event like a COVID infection, but also like any other infection or even surgery, can sometimes just unmask that and make, make the, the symptoms more obvious to people. So, all right, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Oh, one more. Mm -hmm. If that's okay. Yeah. Um, the mask mandates are ending and cases are way down. Are we near the end of the pandemic and are you optimistic where things stand? Yeah. So we, um, you know, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier. <clears throat> optimistic, yes, because things will continue to get better. Um, and we're going to have to ride some waves. Um, but I think the worst waves will be behind us. The, the level of immunity of our population is just getting to such a point now, even with variants coming along, we'll, we'll be able to tamp them down better. Um, but is the pandemic ending? You know, it's going to slide into an endemic infection. Um, and um, technically, as long as there's increased numbers of COVID happening across the world, we still call it a pandemic. But the face of the pandemic is changing. Um, and the impacts of subsequent waves as they come are gonna be less. Um, and um, uh, the, the things that we're gonna have to do 
to keep it from being a significant problem in our society will become less and less, so we won't have to do as much. Um, and um, so it's uh, sliding into uh, sliding into a normal part of uh, what we'll be doing. We won't be thinking about it every day. And um, as things improve, what do you think individual <coughs> health officials should focus on now moving forward? Yeah, I think the big thing is one is, is to, to keep our vulnerable populations um, safe because, um, you know, people with underlying health conditions, people with, um, who are older and people who have, are immunocompromised are going to be at higher risk still for having uh, severe problems with COVID. Um, just like they are with flu. And um, for every year, we spend a lot of time trying to help those people get through the flu season or through any respiratory viral season. Um, so I, I think the focus will be on there. And then as far as monitoring, we're going to be watching a lot more what's going on with the numbers of people getting admitted to the hospital. Because frankly, having a whole bunch of people get colds is not really a big deal. But having a whole bunch of people get so sick that they have to come to the hospital for oxygen and that's what pneumonia is. So those will be the things we'll be looking for. All right, we'll see everybody in two weeks um, and um, enjoy spring.